But if you guys remember what we went over last week, we need to be thankful for the freedom that we have in this country and because the leaders that God has put in place in this nation to read the Bible freely and to study it and to access it in a few moments, even on our phones, that kind of freedom is not always going to be ours. We know that to be, to be true just based on how the Bible says everything's going to unfold. And so take advantage of it now. This is a really, really important part of your walk with God to show your thankfulness for the word that you've been given free access to by studying it and coming to know it. So that's just a, a reminder there. So what I'd like to go over today has to do with some basics that we all need to be reminded of. And that has to do with practically how you actually share your faith, or really what is called the faith of Jesus, with other people, and what you need to know in order to do that effectively. And so we're not going to go over like a typical Romans road type thing, which is also important, but that's just not what we're going to go over today. We're going to look at it from a different perspective, and it all comes down to the kingdom of God. So just by just so that I can know how you guys would describe it in few words. So if I were to ask you the question, what is the kingdom of God? What would you say? Blurt it out. Righteousness, rule, and authority. What did you say, Lisa? Righteousness, peace, and joy. Yep. What else? Spiritual kingdom. Mm -hmm. What's that? Safe place. Sure. Yep. Refuge. What else? Keep it going. Just a few more comments. So we got it. It's not visible. It's righteousness, peace, and joy. There's characteristics to it. It's like refuge. What else? Mm -hmm. That is true. Yeah. The church, sure. Yeah. Yep. It is near and it is in within us. Yeah. So we'll start there. So those are all important parts of it. But one thing that's really important for us to understand, if you're going to properly interpret what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is to know what he was referring to. So every, pretty much every central piece of information that Jesus gave or announced in the New Testament has some kind of base, uh, basis in the Old Testament. Much of what he said had some kind of prophetic connection to Old Testament scriptures, and especially a term such as the kingdom of God. So I will address, first of all, it is true. Jesus did say the kingdom of God does not come with observation. He also said that the kingdom of God is within us, also saying that it's at hand. Jesus also said, or excuse me, not Jesus, but Paul in Romans says that the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So if we start with those three, one conclusion that we can come to is number one, there's characteristics to it. One, one parable that Jesus said uh, is that there are fruits to the kingdom of God. That's the righteousness, peace, and joy. The fruit of righteousness, the Bible calls that. So there's characteristics to it. In other words, somebody who is in the kingdom of God is going to bear the fruit of that kingdom, which would be fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness. Go down the list. Second thing is that it doesn't come with observation, which is, to your comment, that there's a spiritual nature to it. That's why Romans says it is in the Holy Spirit and that it lives within you. There's something about this kingdom that is not visible, but it's invisible. Third thing 
is the timing of this. So when Jesus first announced his ministry, he said, repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand, which means near, at the door, about to come. Then you get into the middle of his ministry, Luke 17, he says the kingdom of God is within you and it doesn't come with observation. So you have him starting his ministry saying the kingdom is about to come. In the middle of his ministry, he says it's within you right now. Then at the end of his ministry, he says something which is kind of confusing. The apostles, right before his ascension, said, are you going to at this time deliver the kingdom to Israel, which is a reference to the Old Testament, which we'll get to in a moment. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know times and seasons, seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And that's a reference to Jesus saying something that was going to come in the future. So you have him saying it's near when he started his ministry. You have him saying it is here in the middle of his ministry. And at the end, you have him saying it's going to come. So there's a part of it that's here and a part of it that's coming. So when Jesus said the kingdom does not come with observation, he was not saying it will never come with observation. What he was saying is that what's important, the important part of the kingdom for you right now is within you. Because later in prophecies in Revelation and in Daniel, there's several references to it being something in the future. In fact, in the book of Acts, you have Barnabas saying, we must, by many tribulations, enter the kingdom. And he was talking about, after you go through the tribulations and persecutions of this life, you'll enter the kingdom. He's talking about a later date. So you've got different communications in terms of the timing of this. So what we're going to dig into to start together is, number one, what part of the kingdom is within us? How do we live in it and communicate it? And what is the part that's coming in the future? Because this is a really central piece of communicating the gospel to others. Because the gospel itself in both Mark and in Matthew is referred to as the gospel of the kingdom. So if you go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 and we'll start in verse 14. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Pay close attention to this. It says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, you don't have to wait any longer. Repent and believe in the gospel. So just so you guys know, the Old Testament reference that's being made here, it's in Daniel. I'm not going to go through all of it right now, but if you read Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9, um, or actually 2, so the 2nd, 7th, and ninth chapters of Daniel, I would encourage you guys to read through those. There's a lot of information there that's a little bit elusive, so if you want to do a deeper study on your own time, you can. But in those three chapters of Daniel, there's a specific reference to a kingdom of a Messiah called the Son of Man. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has this dream of this giant statue that has a gold head, silver shoulders, uh, a bronze, bronze waist, and iron legs, and then iron and clay feet. And he sees in this dream this giant stone that's torn out of a mountain that smashes this image, this statue, and replaces it or supersedes it and remains forever and ever. And then there's this reference in Daniel chapter 9, which is basically the same prophecy communicated in a few more different words that says 
that this kingdom that's coming is going to crush all other kingdoms. And it says it's going to arrive when the son of man appears from heaven with his mighty angels, which is also a reference to revelation later. And then it says the kingdom will be given over to the saints and the saints will possess the kingdom and reign with the Messiah forever and ever. Amen. So you have this reference here. This is what's so cool about this. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. In other words, it's coming right now. But Daniel says this is supposed to come when the son of man appears in heaven, which revelation says is the second coming. So this is where you get the two timings. You have Jesus saying it's here and it's within you and Daniel and revelation saying it's coming later. So here's how we understand this in terms of the gospel that we're preaching today. When you go and share Christ with somebody, or when you go and share the gospel, that word gospel means good news. When Jesus arrived on the scene, he said the gospel of the kingdom, meaning good news of the kingdom is here. Now, what's interesting about this is that if Jesus said that this message of the kingdom is good news, then why does he tell people to repent? Because if you go to somebody and say, hey, really good things are going to happen to you. Why right after that would you say, so you need to really, really clean up your life. Doesn't, it seems like it's contradictory because if you're saying something really good's going to happen, then people will be like, oh, I just wait. But if you say, hey, something really bad's going to happen, so you need to repent. That makes a little bit more sense, right? So in Jesus' first words, when he preaches the gospel, there's this paradox. It's like, okay, he says you're supposed to repent, change your ways, change your mind, turn your life around because there's good news. Why did, he, why did he talk about it that way? It's because there's two sides to this coin of the kingdom of God. The first is that the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah means forgiveness of sin, freedom from bondage, healing of sicknesses and diseases, casting out of demons, which is deliverance, and all these amazing blessings that Ephesians calls every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That's the good news of this. Isaiah 61 says, prophesying about the Messiah, the Lord has anointed me, preach the gospel to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But then it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. So in that prophecy in Isaiah 61, you have the good things that are happening and it finishes with a day of vengeance, which we haven't seen yet. And that's what Daniel and Revelation are referencing. So so you guys then, with that in mind, what was the perspective of the Jews in Jesus' day? So when, it, when Jesus began saying the kingdom of God, what the Jews knew was the kingdom in Daniel. That was their context. That, and that was the scripture Jesus is referencing. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, the Jews are thinking, oh, that means we're the saints in Daniel that are supposed to possess the kingdom and receive it from the Messiah. And they're thinking, okay, that means he's going to appear from heaven in a white horse and a sword, and he's going to destroy Rome, and it's going to be great. But it didn't happen that way. Instead, he came in lowly and on a donkey and was crucified. And so they're thinking, okay, if this guy was the Messiah, he didn't fulfill Daniel's prophecy. But the reason why they didn't catch it was because Jesus was talking about the arrival of the kingdom in a spiritual way first and a physical way later. So when he says kingdom, they're thinking the saints are going to get it. The saints are going to receive it. 
And in this cultural context, if you had a king, so think about it this way, thinking of, think of a literal physical kingdom. If you had a king that showed up in a nation that was not his own and said, this nation or this country, or this land is now mine. I'm going to take it by force. It belongs to me now. I have my armies, everything. And then he says, repent. Back then, to them, that meant, okay, that means either I surrender my life to this new king, pledge my loyalty and pay homage to him, or I'm exterminated. Because that's how things went in that day. It was very brutal. If a new kingdom came, it meant the one that was there formerly was going to be wiped out. Unless you surrendered to the king that was coming. This is why Jesus says the term repent. Because Daniel... And Isaiah, the day of vengeance of our God, the crushing of all other kingdoms through the stone torn out of this mountain. This is talking about that the day was coming when God would take vengeance on the unbelieving world. Second Thessalonians says in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel. And so we're told to repent. That means change your point of view, take on God's point of view, surrender your loyalty to him so that you don't perish in the judgment of this world. So he gives you a, just in that first phrase of the announcement of the gospel, he gives you a comprehensive or well-rounded presentation of what this is, which is the message I'm preaching is good news. In other words, if you surrender your loyalty to me, there's freedom, there's healing, there's forgiveness of sin, there's eternal life. If you do not surrender or you do not repent, what happens later is vengeance. So if you're going to share the gospel with somebody, what this means, if you're going to do it like Jesus and the apostles did, is that what you're sharing is both sides of the coin. The good news that comes with the kingdom if you surrender to it, and the bad news of his vengeance if you don't repent. We have to communicate both of those. And the reason why we have to communicate it not just as a spiritual kingdom, but as a physical one, is because the Bible does refer to a, a very specific kind of a physical vengeance and wrath of God on this earth that is going to come and it's going to come when the son of man is revealed from heaven. It's talking about the second coming of the Messiah. So this means that when you go share the gospel with somebody and you, let's say you approach them with um, like the way that it's commonly done and, and the way that I uh, learned, you approach them and say, Hey, can I pray for you? Or I'd like to say Jesus loves you or Wondering if you want to talk about God, do you have any questions about God? Things like that. Those are just usually starting points. And the way that I was originally taught, it was always the love of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God, which is very valid. It's all true. But it was so common to leave out the judgment that people assumed that the purpose of this was that if you had a bad life experience to get some kind of handout from God to make your life better because of how good he is, which logically and biblically is not what the gospel is, that it's empty in that sense. That's why Paul says, if faith in Christ is about this life only, then of all men, we're the most pitiable. There's something about this that's supposed to be, what the Bible says is, is fear inducing, not an unhealthy terror, but a healthy, godly terror and fear of the Lord will people realize, man, if I don't repent, there is judgment coming. And both 
the grace and the wrath of God. And then in turn, that results in your appreciation of his grace and the respect for his wrath through healthy fear. Both of those two things in balance are what allow you to communicate a well-rounded gospel to somebody that's hearing you. So then if we just boil this down a little bit more, we're going to make it a little bit more practical. What does it actually look like for you to talk to somebody about this? So the first thing that we're going to go over is just basics about what Jesus does, what he expects when we turn to him. So the first thing he says is repent and believe in the gospel. And he says to repent. This is a reminder. He says to repent because of the day of vengeance. If the gospel was only good things, there would be no need to repent. Because repentance means get on the side of the king who's about to invade this land. That's what repent meant to this generation. So then we say, believe the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ, believe in the price that he paid, accept his forgiveness of sins. We're really good at that part. Believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. But why? The very next thing that Jesus communicates, if you keep going in Mark, read verse 16, Mark chapter 1. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. So Jesus says, repent and believe, and your response to that belief our response to that belief, Jesus said, is to follow him. Follow him. So, what did this look like? If you look in Luke chapter 5, which is Luke's account of what just happened here, Jesus shows up on the scene when Peter and Andrew, or Simon and Andrew, are fishing. They've been fishing all night. They didn't catch a thing. Jesus, while he's standing on the shore, says, cast your nets on the other side of the boat, or the right side of the boat. And they said, Lord, we've done this all night, but nevertheless, at your word, we'll let down the net. So they let down the net. The net fills so full that it starts to break. They put all the fish in the boats and the boat starts to sink. So they have another boat come along to help take half the load so the boats don't sink. Then you have Peter falling at Jesus' feet saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy. And then Jesus says in a paraphrase that he doesn't need to be afraid lifts him up and says, come follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. And then it says, and they forsook everything and followed him. Now, this is another really interesting paradox here. Jesus blesses them with a catch of fish that they have probably never, ever seen in their lives. And the first thing he has them do is forsake all of it. So here's what Jesus was demonstrating. And this is where we commonly get this wrong. Jesus was not teaching that he wants to bless you abundantly just for the sake of having an abundance. He blessed them abundantly to show them how effective of fishers of men he will make them into, and that in doing so, you will be provided for and you will have an abundance. But the abundance is not about you. Therefore, he has them forsake all of it. So 
Think about this. If you are in Peter and Andrew's shoes, one moment, if you're in Peter and Andrew's shoes and God gives you the, let's just say the highest, greatest revenue you've ever received in your life and then says, all right, come follow me and leave it. You would think, at least I would think, my first response would be, okay, this must mean that he blessed me with this, not so I could seek it or the blessing, but so that I could know he's going to provide for me miraculously if I follow him and leave it all behind. That's what he's trying to say. Jacob, did you have a comment? You good? Okay. All right. So then if we move forward from here, he says, follow me. They forsake everything. Now, why would Jesus tell us to follow him? And the reason why is because in the process of following him, we call that being a disciple of Jesus, being a student of him. That's what the word disciple means, is to be his student. And he teaches them the ways of the kingdom. Yes. <laughs> no. It's more about your perspective, your attitude about it. You forsake it in the sense of your attachment to it. But having it for the sake of an effective work of the kingdom is what's important. Yeah. Sure. Maybe. Maybe. If you've watched The Chosen, that's how they interpreted the story. Yeah. Anyhow, so back on track here. So being a disciple, follow him means to be his student. Then the people who followed Jesus, he said to them, was revealed the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is here and it's coming and there's vengeance coming. And the people that follow him, he reveals the teachings and mysteries of that kingdom so that they're prepared. So in other words, if you choose to believe in Jesus, I'll just use that word believe or accept him into your heart, but you do not follow him, then to you is not given the mysteries of the kingdom that you need revealed to you so that you're prepared when the day of vengeance comes. Because Jesus spoke in parables and in mysteries to the people who did not follow him, but to his 12, the people who are closely following him, to them it was given the mysteries of the kingdom. And over and over again, if you read the four Gospels, it's always about the kingdom of God, especially Matthew. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is as this or that. He communicates that because he's trying to show everyone, if you're going to be a part of God's kingdom, this is what the life in that kingdom is like. Here's what you can expect. So then, if you're going to communicate this in a way that's understandable to somebody who says, let's say just, knows nothing, nothing about the gospel. Think about it this way. This nation, the United States, is, as far as definition is concerned, a kingdom in terms that it has politics, it has a government, it has a rulership, and there's laws that you have to abide by to be a part of this nation, right? If you break those laws repeatedly, you're either imprisoned or banished. So every citizen of this nation expects to abide by at least the basic rules that allow you to be a citizen of this nation. 
So Jesus, when he's teaching his followers about the kingdom of God, he's saying these are the laws, the rules, the principles and philosophies that you have to abide by to be a citizen of this kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah. And he says, if you don't abide by those rules, you're thrust out. He states this in several different parables. In one example, in Matthew chapter 5, he says that whoever breaks one of these commandments and teaches men to do so will be called least. Then he says, but whoever does and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, so therefore, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. The righteousness of the Pharisees was they would teach about the word, but they would not do it. So in other words, most assuredly, he says, the only way you will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven and remain is if you're a teacher and a doer of the principles or the laws by which this kingdom is ruled. So for sharing this with a person anywhere, it means, hey, you're a citizen of the United States. You know that there's laws you have to abide by. God's kingdom is right here, right now. And God has provided grace in this period of time through the sacrifice of his son so that you can learn about his kingdom. Because there's a day coming when his vengeance will arrive on this earth. And the Bible literally teaches that he's going to replace and crush every human kingdom on this world with his own. And when that day comes, Isaiah describes what life will be like in that kingdom. And it says everyone who does not want the Messiah to rule over them will be thrust out. So Jesus is literally saying, Daniel and Revelation are literally saying, there is a king. Most of this world would refer to it as a politician. Some would say a dictator even though we know that's not who Jesus is. But in the perspective of the world, there's a man coming who's going to, and if we're talking about the United States, replace this government. And we either accept his rulership over us and abide by the principles of his kingdom, or we are thrust out. That's the prophetic message. That's what's going to happen. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So this is why the church age is important. So to Ali's comment, the day we're living in right now is referred to as a grace period, or some people call it with this, this present dispensation. That basically means in the way that Jesus described it in a parable, he said that a king left to a far country to receive a kingdom. And he entrusted his belongings to his servants and said, occupy until I come or do business until I come. Right now we're in that period of do business until I come. So when this nobleman in this parable in Luke uh, 19, I believe it is, is talking about that when Jesus was crucified, rose again and ascended to heaven, he went to be seated at the right hand of the father. And in heaven, the Bible says he offered his blood on the mercy seat of a tabernacle that is in heaven and actually became, he is exalted over every name and all authority was given to him. Right now, he has received from the Father the formal authority over this entire planet. So he's received the kingdom and he's on his way back from that long journey. That's what the second coming is about. 
So right now is the period where he has entrusted his servants with stewardship over what he owns, which is this world, your life, and the lives of the people around you. So the grace period means this is the time for the servants while the king is away to learn how to be a faithful steward. And the grace period means this is a time where God gives you a ton of grace and time to learn how to do that. How, how you're supposed to live a life in, in faithful obedience to the son of God, to the king that's going to return one day. What does it mean to be a faithful steward in terms of sharing this message with other people around you? He used the parable of the minas, the parable of the talents. Everybody is given according to their own ability cert certain things that you will use for your life today. So the spiritual gifts that God gives you, your resources, your material resources, the relationships that are in your life, all of those things are things that are owned by the king who ascended to heaven and he's returning and it says to settle accounts, which means when he returns, he's going to approach every single one of us, the Bible says, and we all will give an account, which means to explain to God what we did with what he gave us. And our stewardship, or actually our salvation, depends upon that stewardship. Now, this is interesting when you state it that way, because it doesn't sound a whole, like, like, whole lot like grace when it's stated that way. But if you look at the parables Jesus gave, he said, to his servants, he gave a different number of talents. And it says the servant that was not faithful was cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, he did nothing with what God gave him. So if we bring this down to just everyday life for us, one parable is this one I mentioned in Luke chapter 19, which says that God had, or that this king, this nobleman, had 10 minas and gave one to each of his 10 servants. One of the servants who was faithful said, Lord, your minna that you gave me has earned 10 more. I was able to multiply for 10 more. And the Lord says, well done. I'll make you ruler over 10 cities. Same thing happens to the next one. He gains five. He congratulates him, says, well done. There's this last servant that did nothing. He says he put it in a napkin, buried it in the ground. He did nothing with it. And when that, when the king returned, he was not happy. And that servant in the form of a parable went to hell. Basically say it that way, just to keep it simple. So what does that mean for us? What, what is the example of a servant that is not faithful with, with what the king has given him? Think about your life. This parable is the same amount that's given to each and every one of us. What you have, that's the same across the board, no matter who you're talking about, is your own life and breath. Second to that is this gospel, this word. What Jesus was rebuking harshly was acknowledging that the king has given you a life, but doing nothing with it. And he's given you a gospel, scripture, and doing nothing with it. An example of this practically would be somebody who says, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. They acknowledge their stewardship and they acknowledge the son of God, but their faith is private. Everything's hush, hush, never talk about it. Live for themselves, their own life, the life that they want to live for their own benefit. But there's no stewardship. There's no multiplication. There's no faithfulness in terms of what was actually entrusted to them. Jesus called that 
of foolish and wicked stewardship, foolish and wicked servant, and that servant was cast into outer darkness. So that means believing the Son and trusting Him requires the repentance to follow and obey Him. That is what Jesus was trying to say in all those parables. So in conclusion to what Ali mentioned, right now is the grace period in the sense that this is where you get the opportunity for your whole life to learn how to be a good steward. But the day is going to come when he returns and that grace period will be over. It's called the day of vengeance. So if we go back to communicating this to somebody, if you tell somebody about Jesus and you say you should believe in him, the reason why we're told to believe him and the reason why we are told to repent is because of the day of wrath and vengeance that's coming. That's the motive behind this. So we're told, Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all perish. This is what Jesus said, no matter who you are. So we have to tell people, if you're going to believe in Jesus, what this means is that this Lord is going to teach you how to live in his kingdom and how to remain in his kingdom. Because there's going to be coming a day when everyone who does not want him to rule over them will be thrust out. So that's why he says, follow me, learn from me. In Matthew 11, he says, learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, right? And you'll find rest for your soul. So in other words, following Jesus is not a burden. It's a joy. That's why it's good news, right? But if you reject his kingship over your life, you'll be thrust out of his kingdom. And we're actually told, this is back to the reference in Daniel, the saints will possess the kingdom. Jesus said in that parable that the one who produced 10 more minas after the first was made ruler over 10 cities. That's a, another reference to Daniel. The saints are each given a portion of rulership over God's kingdom alongside the Messiah. So in other words, following Jesus and being a faithful steward now is like having stock in God's kingdom. That's what it's like. So he gives you a certain amount to be faithful with. And if you're faithful with it now, when the kingdom comes, he takes you as a saint and says, okay, you get to possess this portion of my kingdom. You get to possess this portion. Another person gets to possess this portion. It's described just like a human kingdom in, in the world. Where you have a huge domain, that is the entire universe, essentially. Huge domain. And there's not just the king, there's all of his princes. His sons and daughters his noblemen, his lords, if you will, and they're all given rulership or stewardship over and management over a certain portion of his kingdom. That's why we're here, to learn how to be a saint and ruler over the portion of his kingdom that's delivered to us. And heaven itself, the Bible says, is your inheritance. So if you look in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, Paul said, or Jesus said that Paul's ministry was to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they'd receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In Galatians, 1 Corinthians, and Matthew, Jesus said, what you inherit is the kingdom of God. So, in other words, the reward of being a follower of Jesus is to inherit a portion of his kingdom to be 
ruler over in addition to salvation and eternal life itself. That's the forgiveness of sins part. Eternal life and an inheritance. You, you literally inherit a part of God's kingdom. So right now, if you think about it in this perspective, right now you are learning how to be that kind of ruler, how to be that kind of steward, how to be faithful. And that's why we have to preach that people follow Jesus, not just believe in him. Because if we do not follow, we don't learn his kingdom. Yes. Yes. Yeah, amen. I mean, I can't repeat all of it, but basically in short, Ali said that you have to know the king that you're talking about who is going to uh, take over the world, <laughs> essentially, and that he is, he's loving and faithful and kind and gracious. And if you know his character, it'll make you want to serve him. That's essentially what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, abide in him, you'll take on his character traits, his characteristics, and he is love. He's described in 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah, great comments. So, yeah, if we just address that a little bit more extensively, God's character, that's why when Jesus announced the arrival of the kingdom and that it was good news, the first thing that he did was heal the sick, cast out demons, forgive people's sins. That's what he did to put his character on display, that he was loving and kind. And he took in tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, and dined with them, and he said, I didn't come for the righteous, but for those who are well, but those who are sick. That's what he said. Those who are well don't have any need of a physician, but those who are sick. So I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he's saying the care that he had for people who are rejected and marginalized. Any, anybody that the world cast out, he wanted to receive in. That's one way he showed his kindness, which is why if you look at how Jesus taught the ministry of the kingdom to his disciples, he said, hey, I'm going to return one day. There's going to come vengeance. But so that the world knows who I am, when you enter a city and when you enter a house, heal their sick 
and then say the kingdom of God has come near to you. He's trying to say, show off who I am and then tell the person, this is what the kingdom of God is. So that they know if they're going to choose to serve the king, they know who he is, what he's like, what he stands for, that he's not some wrathful dictator, but he's just and holy and good. So just to give you guys an example of this, about the balance between the grace and the vengeance of God, uh, a few days ago, um, myself and Jacob and Allie were in a mall. We're doing some evangelism, and we approached approached this woman who had a cane. So I stopped her while we were walking by her, and she asked if we could pray for her. If she had pain that needed healed, and she says, "Oh, I have pain all over my body." And she had she said that she had had autoimmune disease and a couple other things, and she said it was a twenty out of ten for pain. So she was in a lot of pain, and was a little bit resistant at first. And so I just said, well, what if God sent us to this mall just to heal you? And, and she paused for a moment and said, okay, I'll let you pray for me. And then she said, but if you have bad energy, I'm leaving. This is what she said. It was funny. And I said, it's, yeah, it's okay. No problem. I said, just watch, just watch. So we laid hands on her and prayed. Took about probably four or five prayers, I'd say and watched the, the pain just drain out of her body. She starts moving around, and she goes, it feels like I just took a pain pill, she said. <laughs> um, just all starts draining out of her body. And then she all of a sudden gets curious, and she goes, you know, why, why is your faith like this? What, what do you believe? And I said, well, do you know what Jesus said? And she's, no, I, what, what did he say? And she, she just was staring, like, I want to know about this, you know. And she had beforehand, she told us, she said, I don't believe in religion. I don't like religion. And I said, oh, I don't either. It's man-made. And she goes, yeah, you know, it is. So I, and I said, but the, the way that you know what God wants is to know how God has, what God has revealed and what God has testified. And, and she said, yeah, I want to know what God says. And, and so we said, yeah, God has testified of his son, Christ, Jesus. And so then we just, I presented the gospel to her and I told her, I said, if you don't believe in the son, the wrath of God abides on you. I told her that. Talked about vengeance, talked about wrath, but she had no problem with it because she had just experienced Christ touch her and his love. And so she has a presentation of here's who Christ is and how much he loves her and how much he sees her, just the fact that she would be stopped in a mall. And she even told her, she said, nobody's ever stopped me before. Nobody's ever done this, she said. And then I tell her about the wrath of God that's coming and his vengeance, and the day of wrath, and that we need to be loyal to the Son of God. And she understood it. She was not taken aback. She was not offended by it. She listened very intently. And so I know, and I, I gave her just a personal card that just had my, my name and email and phone number, and I said, if you ever want to talk about anything else, or if you need anything, let me know. Call me. And she said, yeah, I'll take the card. So she took the card. I don't know if we'll ever see her again. But what I do know is that whatever happens to her, her blood is not on my hands. Right. She experienced the grace. And I didn't get into it extreme detail, but the, I did mention the kingdom of God, that there's a life in Christ, and it's, it's, a, it's a different life. And so th this is what you're communicating to people. You're sharing with people. There, there's a literal government. Like the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 9 about the Messiah, there's a government that rests upon his shoulders. King Jesus. He brings a government with him. There's a rulership. There's a way of life. It's within you. It's to live in, in righteousness and peace and joy. And 
You need to follow Jesus so that you learn how to walk like him and how to obey the principles of the kingdom of God, how to abide by the rules that allow you to be a citizen of heaven. And learn this now. This is what the grace of God is for, because there's a day coming when that grace will be retracted and there'll be vengeance poured out instead. That's what this gospel is. It's good news, but it also includes the fear of God, and that's why there's repentance. And if you just look at it in sequence, just like we've been reading, first thing Jesus says, repent. Second thing he said is follow me. Third thing he said is that here's what the kingdom of God is like. Here's how to live according to it so that you're not thrust out. So if, when we're saying we're going to preach the gospel and make disciples, it should be in the same order that Jesus did it, which is, hey, believe the gospel because God is good and loving and kind and you can see healing and you can see freedom and deliverance and whatever it is that you need. But there's repentance required. Repentance means to change your mind. So we're telling people, hey, take on God's point of view. Don't conform to the world. Believe what Jesus says. Think like him. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what repentance is about. Change how you think and change how you live in turn. Follow Jesus. This is about, hey, you need to be in some kind of path that is progressing and learning obedience to the Son. So that's why we talk about church community, and that's why we talk about relationships with people. And who do you know? Are you part of a community of people that can help you follow, follow Christ? This is part of the gospel. Following him is essential to this message. So that's why you need to talk about that with people. And then once they start following in terms of once they start learning this, that's when you teach about the principles of the kingdom. Here, Hey, here's the basics of what it means to follow Jesus. This is part of this. It's all part of the walk of salvation. And so if we're to move towards wrapping this up now, there is a emphasis on obedience to Jesus that is not emphasized in our preaching as much as it should be because we have so, I would actually say, overtaught grace that people don't see the necessity of obedience anymore. But if you just look at, I'm just going to read to you a few different examples here in the words of Jesus and in other places in the New Testament. Luke 6, 46. You guys can write down these references if you'd like, if you're taking notes. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do the things which I say? When, when a person is saved, like for example, Romans 10, 9 and 10, sinner's prayer, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or in other words, to confess that Jesus is Lord is to do what he says. Therefore, it is not a sinner's prayer that saves, it is the heart that repents and decides to follow and obey, obey Jesus, that is the confession that saves. That's what salvation is. So obedience is just part of the walk. And it's not obedience that gets you saved, but genuine faith is always followed by obedience, if it's real, because the power of God enables you to obey. So that's why when I'm talking to somebody about the gospel, I don't tell them you have to do this, 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 and this to be saved. I just tell them if your faith is real, God will empower you to walk this out. It's not going to be easy. It's not a walk in a park. There's still discipline, like Dolores was saying. You're still going to make some choices that are not going to be comfortable to the flesh. 
The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is going to be uncomfortable. You'll have to make sacrifices. You might have to end some relationships. You'll have to kick some habits. But God will empower you to do all those things by his grace, and that's what his grace is for. His grace reigns through righteousness. If the grace of God is active in your life, it will produce righteousness, and he will empower you to do what you can't do on your own. In other words, he won't leave you alone in the command for obedience. He helps you do it because he did it perfectly. And so he can sympathize with your weaknesses because he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. So if he did it, you can too because he lives in you. That's what this is about. So then John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. So if you're talking to somebody about Jesus, say, hey, do you love Jesus? Yeah. Quote him this verse. He loves me, keeps my commandments. Do you keep the commandments of God? And they might think you're talking about the Ten Commandments. And you just say, no, Jesus' commandment was to love one another. And then you describe loving one another as includes repenting from sin. And as soon as you start talking about sin with people, it makes them realize really where they stand. And so that's where you can get into more details. John 3, verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe, the Greek means he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I mentioned this verse earlier. It's really, really important. It's simple. It's good to have this one memorized, to quote it to people. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe and who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you quote this verse and you do it with love in your actions and in your other words, people will not be offended by this. Oh, well, I shouldn't say that. Some people will be because there's always going to be people who will be resistant to it, um, which I have seen before. But I can guarantee you that the people that God is moving upon and the people that God is softening, they will listen to you. So it's important you have that. John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, this is the people that believed in him but hadn't taken the step to follow him yet. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Part of being obedient to the Son is to abide in the word of God. If you're not learning the word of God, you're not a follower or a disciple of Jesus. You're not obedient to the Son. So to be obedient to Christ means, hey, abide in his word. That's one reason why community is important. Having a Bible, knowing how to read it and study it, it's super important. You've also got James 1.22 that says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you are a hearer only, you are deceiving yourself. In other words, if we tell people that your job is just to attend church or listen to people who preach the gospel or listen, listen to 98.5, but you're not a doer of the word, you are deceiving yourself, which means you might not actually be right with God and you may think you are because you're listening to the right things. But it's not about what you hear, it's about what you do. You have to hear first in order to do, but the doing has to be together with the hearing. Matthew 21, verse 43 says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. A nation bearing the fruits of it. And the fruits of the kingdom are what? Romans 14, 17, and 18. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. In other words, he's trying to say, the kingdom of God is not like Valhalla. You don't just go there and have a feast and eat and drink and sit in hammocks and drink pineapple juice. That's not, it's not eating and drinking. It's not about a giant party, right? That's not what heaven is. He's trying to say it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So you ask a person, are you in his kingdom? Because if you're saved, you're in his kingdom. So do you have righteousness, peace, and joy? No. 
Are you in his kingdom then? Maybe not. Right? Simple. Second John, verse 6. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that, you, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. First Peter 1, 3 through 17. Am I going too fast? Okay. I'll go slower. <laughs> Second John 6. It's only one chapter. So Second John, verse 6. It was the previous one. All right. Move on to the next one. First Peter 1, verses 13 through 17. These are good to have these in your arsenal. If you want to memorize verses, these are good ones. 2 Peter 1, verses 13 through 17 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that has been brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. This is about being a faithful steward. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay. This is this life, this earth. Live in fear. Healthy, godly fear. And be an obedient child. Just like, you know, the Bible says, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. If you do so, this the commandment with promise that you'll live long and be well with you. You'll live long on the earth. That's also written to us as children of God. Children, us, be obedient to God. Then you'll live long and be well with you. You'll inherit the earth. It's talking about being obedient to him as well. Ecclesiastes. This is one in the Old Testament. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. I love this verse. My favorite in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. I'll give you guys a minute just to spell that, spell that out because it's a long one. <laughs> E-C-C-L-E-S, yeah. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. In other words, everything. Your everything, what you were made for, is to fear God and keep his commandments. Then it says, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Romans 1, verse 5. Romans 1, verse 5, says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Love this verse. Why did God give you grace? Why is the grace period here? I mentioned this earlier. So that we be obedient to the faith. The grace is to empower you to be obedient. And what's the apostleship about? That Greek word means to be sent. In other words, you have received grace so you could be sent out to preach the gospel and so that you'd be able to live in and teach obedience to the faith. Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Almost done here. Acts 5, verse 32. says, And we are witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, 
whom God has given to those who obey him. This is another important verse because when we think of, in this context, this is about the gift or baptism of the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles would lay hands on somebody and they'd be filled and they would prophesy or speak in tongues or magnify God, that, that's the, the kind of the context of this statement. So he's saying that gift is given to those who obey him, which is why if you look at the sequence of people receiving Christ, it's they repent, they're baptized in water, they begin to follow Jesus, and then they're given the gift of the Holy Spirit which means God doesn't give the gift of the Holy Spirit to everybody. Like my dad would say, just because they can fog a mirror, you know. This is about that there's obedience. I, I don't get it either. I don't know what it means. I just heard it growing up, so I'm just saying it. <laughs> I think it just means that if you're breathing. Okay. Okay, okay, that makes sense. All right. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, not just because you're breathing, but... He gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. It's really important. Mark 12, verses 32 through 34. This, is, this one's a little bit different, but it's interesting. Mark 12, verses 32 through 34. So the scribe said to Jesus, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the... The, than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. So he presents the law of Moses in summary and says, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom. He didn't say, oh, you're just under the law. He said, you're not far from the kingdom. Why? What's the one thing this guy was lacking? right? But Jesus told people, follow me, obey, but he said, believe. So this guy, he asked Jesus, you know, what's the way to eternal life? What's the greatest commandment? And he says, Jesus says, well, what's your reading of the law? What is, what does your Bible say? And he said, well, it's love God and love your neighbor. And he said, you're not far from the kingdom because the only thing he lacked was faith in Jesus. He was relying on his work still. Which means Jesus was not throwing away the law, right? We don't make void the law. The righteousness of God as a standard still remains, which means to love God and love your neighbor is upheld in other places in the New Testament after the resurrection. It's still part of our commandments. Love God and love people with and through faith in Jesus. And that's the one thing this man lacked. So this means if you're going to tell people put faith in Jesus for his grace, it is for obedience the commandments of God. And Jesus said his commandment was, as I have loved you, so love one another. And love is the fulfillment of the law. If you want to learn more about that, read, read like the second half of Romans 13 and you'll get more details. <clears throat> okay, one more verse. Luke 13, verses 24 through 28. I'm going to read the whole passage of this. Luke 13, verses 24 through 28 says, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. This is interesting. He's saying there's going to be people who want God, but won't be able to enter the kingdom. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. 
Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. That sounds awfully familiar. We went to church. We heard the teaching. We saw the guys in the soapboxes with the repenter parish signs. and We ate and drank. We were in fellowship with the right people. And some of these pe people who wanted to enter, he will, say, he will say, depart from me. I tell you, I do not know you for where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Matthew 7 says those who practice lawlessness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see, see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. So just to wrap this up, I said this was the last verse, but I have to read one more that just came to mind just now. This one's hard to hear for some people, but this is so, so important. Because if you're teaching somebody about the gospel and you know that they're in sin, and you just say, well, just, just put your faith in Jesus. Technically, biblically, that's actually not enough. If that's all you say. Because it's what faith produces if it's real. So if you read Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh. In other words, if a person is still in the flesh, this is going to be the output of their life. These works are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies. If I just pause there, typically we don't think of people who are contentious or jealous as being in the flesh still. I mean, how many people that we know that are just argumentative, easily provoked, or always fighting with people, or jealous? No. No, yeah, it's not about all of them, right? <laughs> Any of them. Contentions, jealousies. Huh? Right, exactly. Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Very clear. Really important that we know this because if you're communicating this to somebody, the gospel to somebody, and they're practicing these things, a practice of whether it's one or many, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. People need to wake up to this so they realize the need for repentance, and that's when their faith becomes real. One example is very similar if you go to 1 Corinthians 6. Right. Great point. Yeah, if you practice those things while claiming to be a Christian, you draw more people away from the truth because of the example of your life. Right. Expectation. Yeah. First Corinthians 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. In other words, this is supposed to be past tense. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There's so many people, and I've been there, somebody you know is practicing sin. 
like First Corinthians six and Galatians five, and they and you ask them because you're concerned about their salvation. Do you believe in Jesus? In many cases, and I've done this, and they'll say yes, and I'll say okay, and I'll leave them. Like that's all they need. But the Bible says, if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom. Why? Because you cannot live in a kingdom whose principles you repeatedly violate. Otherwise, you're thrust out. So repentance and faith requires turning away from works of the flesh and choosing the fruit of the spirit. Yes. I understand your question. So great question. Really appreciate you speaking up and asking that. Yeah. So the question is, if all sin is the same in the eyes of God, then why are some sins that if you practice them, you can't, like in her words, can't go to heaven and the other sins that are not this way? So this just requires a little bit of clarification. So thank you for bringing this up. So number one, the only sin technically that puts you in the position to practice all others and that puts you in the position to not receive eternal life is unbelief. In other words, if you refuse to believe in Jesus, well, then there's no hope at all because that that's, that's number one. As far as anything else that you practice. So first of all, Galatians five and first Corinthians six, where we just read, those are examples of kind of an overall list. It's intended to be a presentation of pretty much everything. There is no one sin that God considers to be less or more of a sin than others. There are some sins that have worse consequences on your life. But as far as God is concerned, somebody who's a liar and somebody who's a murderer are both just as guilty. Right? So it's not about what sin a person commits or doesn't. It's about whether they're practicing sin. So this means, for example, practicing would be that it's something that repeats as a habit in your life without repentance. There's no intention to turn away, no desire to turn away. So this does not mean that if you occasionally make mistakes, you won't go to heaven. This basically means that if you are a practicer, or you, we might say follower of a certain sin, then that demonstrates you haven't been regenerated. In other words, they're... they're eternal life does not live in you. So there are going to be certain people who might struggle with a certain sinful habit and they want to change it, but they just don't have the understanding yet or the power to turn away. That would be the only case in which I'd say, okay, this person very well could be saved because Paul talked about that case in Romans 7 where he said somebody has the desire to turn away so that the, what they're in their sin, it's not they who do it, but the flesh that dwells in them. And so it's just simply a matter of, hey, you need to change your beliefs a little bit so you have the power to turn away. Yeah. Right. Right. There's going to be progress. Right. So somebody who's practicing a sin, it's going to continue without any change. 
that's going to be, does this make sense? Does it answer the question? Do you want more clarification on anything? Let me explain it this way. The question is, was about homosexuality, and that's something that you can't change, is the way that she said it. So I'll, I'll do my best to, to explain this in, in a way that we all can understand and that we're able to communicate to others. The Bible says all of us were born out of our mother's wombs into this world sinners. All of us. We all had, were born with a sinful nature. Some people have inclinations for certain sins more strongly than others. For some people, they might have more of a, as far as sin is concerned, to bend towards certain addictions like alcoholism or drug abuse or things like that. For other people, it might be more sexual sins. But all of us are born sinners. So if it's possible to say that somebody is born homosexual and they can't change, it's the same as saying somebody is born an adulterer and they can't change or an alcoholic, right? So everyone is actually born a sinner. So technically it's true to say some people are born homosexuals in the sense that they were born with a sinful nature. But just because you're born with it doesn't mean it can't change because that's why the Bible says we need to be born again. So in other words, just as much as a person is born a homosexual, there's another person who's born an alcoholic. And just because they're born that way, which is actually true, doesn't mean it can't change. It just simply means they're born with a nature that is in enmity with God. It rebels against God and their nature needs to be changed. Right. It's what iniquity is exactly. So this is super important because this means that if you're talking to somebody who, especially if we're talking about the context of uh, homosexuality or, or LGBTQ, whatever it is that you're specifically referring to, and the belief is that it can't change because they're born that way, that's actually the whole basis of the gospel that we need to be born again. So your nature has to be changed, and God actually promises that our nature will be changed if we put faith in him. But the problem is if you teach that homosexuality is a nature that can't be changed, then you actually rob a person from what makes them free, which is being born again. So it has to be taught that a nature can be changed. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, are there any questions about any of this? Read your Bible. <laughs> Repeat it all. <laughs> Did you have a question? No? Okay. So, let me just state you guys the goal. So, the reason why I went over all of this was because the Lord gave me instructions specifically to go over helping you guys communicate a well-rounded gospel to people. And he said, focus on repentance. Uh, he said, repentance, obedience, and, or sorry, yeah, repenting, following, obe and obedience. Yeah, repent, repent and believe, follow, obey. Those were the three points that he gave to me. And so, do you guys feel like you're, I mean, I'm sure you'll go back and listen to it again, but do you guys feel better equipped to communicate the gospel? Okay, good. 